0: As I sit here with you, I imagine that one of the things we have in common is that things look different. (laughs) I've never, I've been in this hall many times over the years since it was built, and the hall, amazing spacious hall with windows that look beautifully out across the valley, so much of it stays the same. But the world of people changes in this hall. I've seen a lot of change. People come and go. And, and I've never s- seen the room this way. <laughs> With this is so few people sitting out there. And you all have sat here for a month and suddenly, Five barbarians show up, and you probably connected in some ways, got used to the wonderful February teachers, and then we appear, different lineup. So um, I'm very touched to be here, sitting in the room with you. It's very, very special, I think, that anybody has the opportunity to go on retreat like this, to go for two months, go for one month. And um, it's something I wish that everyone could have a chance to do at least once in a lifetime. And for some of you, maybe this is your time. It's a very, uh, I think it's a really beautiful thing to do. It's a courageous thing to do. And it's very different than what most of our society tells us we should be doing. And and for us as teachers to come in and step into the middle of your two-month retreat, uh, I certainly feel like, we should do it with care and uh, uh, sensitivity to the practice and the work that you've done. so those of you who don't know me, I'm Gil Franzdahl. And uh, some of you don't know the other teachers, is Donald, Roth, uh, Donald Rothberg here, and John Travis at the end, and Mary Grace Orr here, and Heather Martin at the end over there, and Tija. And we'll be doing our qigong. A qigong teacher, our qigong master. We'll be doing the movement uh, in, the, in March, and uh, Sharda is uh, is around, but she went. She lives close by, so she went home for the evening. We've been already meeting over the. We met with the February teachers, and it might not be obvious to you, but we give a lot of care uh, to making sure that this transition goes as smooth as possible because it can be rough uh, for those of you who stay on um, to have so many people leave and then have an army of people show up tomorrow. And so we're doing our best to kind of make it manageable for you, and hopefully that will be the case. So one of the things we have in common is change. And I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about change, about impermanence, since it really lays at the, at the heart of what Vipassana practice is about. Uh, the heart or one of the central insights of Vipassana is the insight into impermanence, into change, constancy. And I'm sure some of you have heard a lot of talks about this topic But it's actually uh, hard to really see how impermanent things are. To really see into the nature of impermanence, it's so hard that in the Buddhist tradition, uh, they talk about uh, that most people, most of the time, operate through distorted perceptions. The technical Buddhist word, if we translate into English, would is uh, upside-down perception. And uh, how this kind of this perception, this upside-down perception, works, is people tend to see permanence in what is impermanent. They tend to find self in what is not self, and they tend to see happiness in things which don't really are not really that happy. And um, and so the path of practice is not so much to. Um, part of the practice is to be able to perceive things in a new way, in a new way that is not, things aren't distorted. And the task of mindfulness practice is to break through those distortions so we can see more directly. And um, I know that I, often in my life, have succumbed to what I call the delusion of permanence, where I don't think, you know, logically that things are permanent. But emotionally, my emotional connection to things is, oh, this is it. This is how it's going to be. And I can remember retreats I've gone on where the first day of the retreat, I was so tired. And I, oh And then I'm going to be tired the rest of the retreat. Forever. The illusion of permanence. And then the next day, I got more rest. And then I was calm. And then the delusion of permanence set in. And it took the form of, wow, I have it made. I, I am just going to f- float and coast through this one. But then the third day happened. <laughs> and then my unresolved issues bubble up and f- like a volcano. And I just can't believe that I'm on a retreat. How did I get here? This is crazy. And these teachers, what they're talking about doesn't make any sense. And, and this is, you know, you know, this is really a, a terrible mistake. I made a major life mistake. And this is, you know, I'm stuck now. And then the fourth day happens. And the fourth day, things settle quite a bit. And there's experiences of maybe some delight bubbles through. And now you're ready. I'm ready to go out and convert everyone. I have it made again. And then the fifth day happens. <laughs> and sometimes these cycles in my practice happened hourly. Delusion of permanence of that this hour, this is it, I have it made. Great. But then the next hour would happen. Come back for the next sitting. And they would just start to crash. And uh oh. And um I probably still carry battle scars from some of my battles with the delusions of permanence. But eventually, if you do enough of these retreats or go enough through enough of these cycles, something begins dawning, and that is that things are changing. And so, then there's a less tendency to take things as being so permanent or constant and And then the the next time it happens, next time you go on retreat and you're tired the first day, oh, I know this, it's just tiredness of the first day, and it's held more lightly. The next day, there's, you know, the wonderful beauty of a calm, maybe calm mind, and you think this is it, you say, oh, I've been here before. It's just a calm mind, it's one of those days, one of those hours, one of those sits. The next day, the knee's on fire. Oh. Okay, And so what changes is not necessarily the experience, but how it's held. And there's a, the wisdom of impermanence to see things coming through is we begin holding it lighter and lighter, as opposed to latching on, or identifying strongly, or succumbing to the delusion of permanence. This is how it's going to be. So the whole thing's lighter. And... Many times people focus on having particular experiences. The experiences are important. But one of the things that we we learn in practice like this is not so much to have a particular experience, but to learn to hold it lighter. And there's a lot of freedom in holding things lighter. If you go to countries like Thailand, uh, it's quite remarkable to see when Challenging things happen. Terrible things happen sometimes, and uh, how people sometimes will hold it quite lightly, and they'll often hold it lightly with the saying, "Oh, it's impermanent." You have a, you know you know something simple like make you, you have a f- go out to your car and the tire is flat. And rather be rather than being offended that reality has given you a flat tire, the injustice of it all. It's more like, oh, of course. Of course, impermanence. And so it's held more lightly. When, um, and this way that we hold it is very important. When I was ordained <clears throat> as a Zen priest many years ago, the ritual didn't mean anticipating the rituals going to go through I, didn't, I wasn't ritual oriented didn't think it would have any meaning particularly but I was really struck by how deep it affected me, the ritual I went through and, and I had the language to myself that um, now that I was ordained as a Zen priest and joined this lineage of ordained Buddhists I was a child of the Buddha and as a child of the Buddha I was kind of like I was accepted as I was as I am and it was a wonderful feeling to feel completely accepted and at the same time and this is what, at the same time i became much more acutely aware of my shortcomings and i loved that juxtaposition of feeling somehow like it was okay to have all these shortcomings i was accepted and become more acutely aware of them because and then i became interested in how to overcome those shortcomings work through them dissolve them resolve them but I didn't have to because I was a child of the Buddha. This was my language back then. Or the way the Zen Center, they talk sometimes, they had this expression that uh, it's, it's supposed to be said in a certain way. It's supposed to be said something like this. You're perfect just the way you are. And there's room for improvement. And this juxtaposition is holding a both, holding it lightly, holding oneself lightly. And I think coming into a retreat like this, being on retreat, that I think we're all, if you accept my language for the moment, uh, children of the Buddha are accepted, or taken, taken as we are. This is a place where we all can be as we are, accepted as we are, all the differences and uniqueness we have. And that there's room for improvement. And there's ways in which you can engage more deeply with who you are. And I think that uh, practice like this, being on retreat, I hope that it bo- both creates a sense of safety and comfort or meaning that's nourishing for us all. And I hope that it also challenges us. If it doesn't challenge us, <clears throat> then I don't know if it's going to have you know, some really great value in our life. It's very important to be nourished. If it doesn't nourish you, that's also a problem. But I think it's lovely if it could be both. To be nourished and to be challenged. And the teachings about the upside-down views, upside-down perceptions, is meant to challenge us. Vipassana practice is meant to challenge us as much as it is to nourish us And one of the ways it's supposed to challenge us is by challenging the way that we perceive, the way that we interpret, the the way that we understand ourself and our world, that there has to be a willingness to enter into the practice, enter into our life with a question mark, perhaps the way that I've understood myself, perhaps the way I've understood what life is about. Maybe it 's not quite right. Maybe there's a little bit upside downness to it. Maybe there's other ways. because if we don't have a little question mark around our, all our views, our understanding of self and all that, then it's very hard to step out of that world. And unless we step out of it it 's hard to break the strong identifications, the strong attachments we have to our sense of self, to our views to how we think they're supposed to be. When I was um, practicing in Japan, in a Zen monastery there, it was the first time I'd practiced in America for many years, in Buddhist monasteries here, but it was the first time I practiced in an, in an Asian monastery, in a Japanese monastery. I was the only Westerner there. And I was struck that... Um, so I was, I was, every morning we had a, a communal period of cleaning called soji, kind of very vigorous, 15 minutes of cleaning. Everyone's cleaning. All these young men are cleaning, with rags and brooms and everything. And um, it was kind of fun. I was kind of young, it was kind of vigorous. And then after about three or four months of this, doing it every day with a large group of Japanese monks. I had this kind of waking up experience. I kind of woke up in the middle of the cleaning and I realized that I was operating in a different social universe than they were. That I was operating as an individual among a group of other individuals. And they were operating as a group and pieces of a group, elements of a group. I was operating as an autonomous individual. They were operating as a collective. It was like, wow. I was like, suddenly like, wow, there's something else going on here. I have no idea. And then I saw myself in a new way. Because I had assumed that the nature of the universe is such that we're supposed to be, we are individuals, autonomous individuals. That's the way the universe was constructed. And then I saw, no, this is a, a, a cultural creation different ideas of what it means to be individual or part of a group and different cultures have different ways of understanding this and this is part of the constructed world of culture. So to be challenged in the Dharma and the practice is also to put a question mark around the idea of what it means to what your idea of self is because your idea of self of individual what it means to be is going to be a magnet for all kinds of clinging attachments and other ideas. I didn't think uh, at the time, I, I, I didn't think that the Japanese way or the Western way, of, cultural way of being, one was better than the other. They were both fine, just very different. Recently I read a study or a report of a study that um, when you take a group of people who have grown up in an individualistic culture, like American culture generally is, not always, and with a collectivist culture, a communal culture, that looking at the same photograph, same picture, they look, they see it differently. And the individualistic uh, uh, kind of conditioned people Mm -hmm. will see the particulars in the picture. Look for details. Whereas the collectivist culture people look for the gestalt and the patterns that exist. So I say all this a little bit as a challenge to you, that you have an inherited way of seeing yourself, others, the world. And in order to go into the world of vipassana, of mindfulness, there has to be a question mark or a willingness to hold it lightly and, and see, is, is, there an, is, is there an other way, perhaps a radical other way, of seeing our life than the way that you've inherited from our, your culture, your society, your family, and all that? Is there a question mark around it? And so this idea of impermanence uh, uh, points to um, or this insight into impermanence, points to an alternative way of being with our experience than the usual ways in which we conceive it. So I'll get to that in a few minutes, how that works. So impermanence is something that we all see in life, one way or the other. And um, sometimes it comes uh, in small ways, big ways, huge ways. It can come in unexpected ways. <clears throat> You can uh, from one moment to the next, your life can be turned upside down yeah. one moment to the next, you can have it, your life can be completely changed, and you didn't even see it coming so you suddenly you're in a car accident, someone rear ends you and you get injured you need to go take a shower and you feel a lump that wasn't there before there's all kinds of change can come quite strong quite you know recently we've had uh around the world, some earthquakes. And um, Remember, there was an earthquake at Yucca Valley during a retreat. And uh, what seemed very permanent, um, the earth, solid earth, didn't seem so permanent for the people who stood in the desert and watched the desert floor buckle and wave. So we can see the impermanence in that way and it can be a big challenge to us. How do we hold that? How do we relate to that? And sometimes it's only when things, are, impermanence hits dramatically that we question or are forced to face some of the values, some of the attachments and clinging that we have. I've known people who in their youth were quite athletic, and their whole sense of self was surrounded, was, was built, on, built on being athletic. And then they had an accident where they could no longer be athletic. And it was a lot of grief, and a lot of anger. But coming through the other end, they would they said, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I, I had not realized how deeply attached, identified I was with the, the, that kind of the world view, the identity of being an athlete, and how much I, I had narrowed my life around that. And now I found something actually different and more meaningful for me by having that yanked away. Impermanence is not only just, not just bad news. It also can open up possibilities for us. And all human beings have to contend with the obvious forms of impermanence, sickness, old age, and death. And I, we hope we, our hope is that mindfulness practice can help a lot to help us understand, again, how we relate to all these changes. Can we relate to it in a lighter way without the resistance and fear? But in talking about it this way, I'm talking about more conventional impermanence, what can be seen by anyone, even people who don't practice. But in order for a vipassana practice to open up a, a more subtle level or deeper level of impermanence, there has to be a willingness to step aside or put aside the usual concepts and ideas that we use to carry and interpret the life that we have. Because it's the function of concepts, not function, one of the functions or results of concepts is they give the illusion of things being permanent. And as long as we're seeing things through the filter of a concept, we see things much more permanent than they actually are. So for example, I I operate in different roles. I have different roles that I have in my life. I'm a parent. And sometimes it's appropriate for me to be a parent, take on that role. I'm a husband. Sometimes it's appropriate to have that role. Sometimes I'm a a teacher and I'm in in that role. But if I hold on to that role and give it permanence, which I can only do through having the idea of it, then I might go go home and try to be a teacher at home. And that doesn't work. or be a father to my wife. That doesn't work. To have a role and to hold the role suggests some constancy. But the role is just an idea. It's a concept that we inhabit and use while it's useful. And the the idea of the role can actually hinder, as useful as the role might be, it hinders our ability to see directly what's here and now. Separate from the role. Separate from the idea that's there. So as we sit, um, um, you know, to go on retreat means to do something very radical. It means to step out of your normal life. So there's already quite a bit of shifting and changing just to be here. We're not involved in social life in the way that we would be outside. And for some of you, I hope, or I think for some of you, it's probably a bit of a relief. And part of some of the relaxation of being on retreat is that you don't have to negotiate the social world. There's a lot of letting go and settling. It happens naturally, because you're not involved in conversation and the back and forth, and it happens there. So then, but there are other kind of stepping, putting aside, that we do when we do mindfulness practice. <clears throat> It's very useful to put aside thinking about the past. Thinking about the past will happen. But our orientation is not towards the past, even if the past bubbles up. We put aside the orientation about thinking about the future. We put aside the orientation of focusing fantasies about the present moment or interpreting, or thinking, or judging the present moment. All those things will happen, but there's an understanding, this is not what I'm here to do. Not to be critical, not to feel like it's wrong to have those things happen, but not to be oriented towards them. Not to validate them as though this is what I should be doing. They're fine in and of themselves to do those kinds of things, but they all involve thinking. And when we start thinking, thinking is the one the vehicle for it beginning to assign permanence to our experience. So, to, so when once we start kind of dropping into the present moment and really seeing what's here more directly, the mind is quiet enough to see. At some point there are time, moments, sometimes, where you might notice that a thought arises. And after a short while, perhaps, that thought fades away. And then a new thought arises. And a thought passes away. That thought passes away. To, to see the arising of the thought, I am a teacher, and then see it fade away. It may be very different than if I see the thought, I am a teacher, arise, and then I latch onto that thought. Oh, this is an important thought. This means that I need to do X and Y, I have to be this kind of person, and people are probably judging me now, and this and that. And I do all this stuff with that thought and I've kind of pulled into the world of that thought. But to simply see the thought arise and pass away, without getting involved in it, we see the arising and passing. And we see the impermanence of it. It's hard to see the impermanence of it if we pick it up and get involved in it. But if, if there are those moments... Occasionally, where you might see the arising of thought and the passing of it, and then before the next arising, who are you? Who are you, in that space where you have no thoughts to tell you? If you don't have, th- if thoughts aren't available to tell you who you are, who are you? You still are. something very precious that can we feel a certain kind of safety or certain kind of openness or certain kind of lightness of being, when we can see or feel or be present without the, f- the filter of, the I- of ideas and concepts of what's going on, it's easier to take things a lot lighter. Oh, it's just a thought. Wondering what's for dinner, or for breakfast tomorrow morning. See the thought arise, and let it go. As opposed to getting getting involved in it. So Vipassana really opens up in a very interesting way, when we can start seeing the arising of things and the passing of things. And it really helps a lot to begin breaking the solidity that our concepts tend to give to things. Concept of self, concept, concept of permanency. See the arising and passing. So there could be a rising and passing of emotions. Um, it's quite remarkable to watch an emotion arise and then pass. Sometimes it might take a few hours to see it pass. Or even some days, some strong, strong moods can set in But even when there are strong moods, there can be kind of sub-emotions that arise and pass within it. It's very interesting to see the arising of an emotion and the passing of an emotion. I've, I've had emotions arise, and I've latched on, I've assigned meaning to it. I've interpreted the emotion as saying something about me. This means that I'm such a kind of person. And when I say, I'm such a kind of person, it's really close to falling into the delusion of permanence. There's no need to say anything about yourself at all. There's no need need to make conclusions. It's It's good enough to rest or stay present for that stream of arising phenomena and passing phenomena. But when you look more closely, if you can break through the concepts or break through the identification with emotions and moods that arise and pass, or the emotions that are there, not only, even the emotions that last for a long time, you'll see that they're not actually constant. They actually arise and pass as well, much more quickly than you realize. Perhaps I've been in situations where I felt kind of lousy. And identified with myself, I'm kind of lousy, I'm feeling depressed and sad and blue, poor Gil, feeling sorry for myself. And then I go out, the front door. And it's just beautiful, blue sky and green, and I feel this delight. Do I take any time to register that delight? I just let it go right by. The poor Gil, oh, I'm so sad. <laughs> but if I really stayed present, I would have seen that there was a moment, there was some sadness, then there was a moment of the sadness passed to make room for that delight. And then the delight faded. And then I went back to the sadness because I was so interested in it. It seemed so important. There's a kaleidoscope of subtle, changing, shifting emotions happening all the time. There's a kaleidoscope of changing thoughts as well. Subthoughts, in-between thoughts. Our physical body. If you tune into your body and see it through the filter of concepts, ideas, you get the sense that it's much more permanent than it is. Pain is a classic one, physical Pain. When I've looked at my pain as a thing, as pain, as my pain, it has a solidity. It seems heavy. But if I drop the word my, just see the pain, then it's lighter. But even better, if I drop the word pain, because that's an abstraction, and bring my attention really in close, to actually feel it, to be interested in that experience, what I find is that it's not so solid. The pain is actually made up of a shifting pattern of tightness, hardness, stabbing, searing, burning, twisting, jabbing, you know. I'm sure some of you are all too familiar with what these can be. And you can actually see these things, these particular sensations, and you see them, how they, they arise and pass. I've sometimes felt like knee pain. And I really get into it. From a distance, it seems like my whole knee is on fire. It just seems so, like, permanent. But if I really bring my attention really carefully and precisely into it, it's not the whole knee. It's one little square centimeter of pain. But if I really go into that square centimeter, it's not a constant enduring pain. But it's actually a little shifting, sens- these sensations, that arise and pass and dance around in that little centimeter. And it happens very fast, but if it's if it's shifting and always changing and moving, it's like, what's the expression in English about not being a sitting target? There's no sitting target for your... It's just all these things shifting and changing. It's It's not so solid. I find it's a lot easier to be with it because I don't take it so seriously or it's kind of like It's gone before I can do anything about it. Not the pain, but each individual sensation is dance that happens. Now, the reason why this is useful is that at the macro level of our experience, we can see impermanence and change. At the micro level, it's harder to see it. And it's harder to see it if we're always seeing things through the filter of our concepts and ideas, whether those have come from our culture, how we've been acculturated, or other, any kind of things at all. So that has to be a willingness to kind of put that aside. And with a question mark, maybe there's a more direct way of accessing this life, of seeing. What is it? It's a big question mark. What is this experience here? What is it really, if I put aside my thoughts about it, my ideas? And then we start to see, and and the building block for the macro level is the micro level. And that's kind of the specialty of Vipassana, is to help us to kind of look at this micro level of the building block with which we build up our sense of self, our sense of our world, our reality, and all these things. And it isn't that, the fact that it's micro doesn't mean that it's not important. It's actually probably the most important part of our life is to start at the base the foundation where we build everything up. And so if you start seeing that things are arising and passing, the impermanence of it, it shifts the name of the game. It's a very different way of being with ourselves than being with ourselves, you know, according to some role or some identity that we carry with us, some values of, you know, that we've adopted from our society or something. So the, so a really important question for a Vipassana student is how, how can you reorient yourself so that you're willing to suspend for the time being some of the common and usual ways in which you conceive of, think about who you are, what you are, what this world is about, even what the practice is about. Put that aside so you can be really right here and enter into the, this moment to start seeing what is actually going on when I, when I don't see it through an idea when I don't relate it back to myself. It's, so that's part of the reason we keep coming back to the present moment, when we do the noting in mindfulness practice, or we just do the careful seeing. What is this? What is this experience here? We don't go digging for impermanence, for change. We don't go try to make it happen. But just, equa- just looking, what is this here? What is going on? What's directly right here? When I experience a breath. The breathing. There's the arising of an inhalation and the passing of it. It exists for a certain time and then it goes away. There's the beginning of an exhalation and the passing of it. It's a profound thing to be able to see something as simple as that. And some people will, will watch their breathing through an image of the breath, or a concept of breathing. When we do vipassana practice, we try to put aside images and concepts so we actually can feel the immediacy of the direct experience. Not that concepts are bad, or visualization is bad, but it interferes with the ability to see the immediacy of how things arise and pass. You see the arising of a breath and the passing of it. But there's a sound, the arising of the sound and the passing of the sound. A thought arises that wasn't there before. And perhaps if it's a juicy thought, it comes with the arising of body sensations. And then those thoughts fades and sooner or later the body sensations pass away as well. And there's all these changes through the day. Sometimes the change in impermanence is fast, sometimes it's slow. And to begin appreciating how things are constantly changing and shifting, and th- or appreciating this shifting and changing nature of things, is very helpful in the process of lightening up. Of not grabbing and holding and clinging, or wanting things to be a particular way. So the world of vipassana is said to open up when we relax and allow the mindfulness to be strong enough to see what's happening moment by moment. And one of the, one of the, one of the things that gets in the way of that is something I call the retrospective thinking. What that means is that something happens You're there for it. And then you start thinking about it. And because you start thinking about it, you've missed missed the next next, next moment, what happens next. I liken it to watching a river going by, and you have a bucket in your hand, and you scoop out a bucket full of water in your bucket, and walk away from the river, pointing to your friends and say, look, the river. (laughs) I have the river in my bucket. You don't have the river in the bucket. You have water in your bucket. If you out of the stream, the river of your life of the present moment, if you pluck one experience out and start thinking about it, you no longer have the river. So, the idea, so, so it's, it, it, the idea, when you do Vipassana practice, is somehow try to stay in the river of change, of the moment, next moment. There's no need to think about what just happened, or make meaning out of it, or assign meaning to it, or try to just, next moment, what's this? What's this? That's why I think that the Vipassana bumper sticker should say, I don't stop for anything. <laughs> just the next thing, just to be present for this, present for this. There's a very interesting reversal. When the mind is agitated, The mind tends to. Tends towards the delusion of permanence. When the mind is still. It tends to see impermanence. So as we, and so that's why it's so important to be at ease, to relax. To be feel like you're the child of the Buddha, to feel like you're perfect the way you are, you are. So that it allows yourself to kind of, kind of in a sense, let let yourself off the hook. It's okay. It's okay. Really, it's okay. Let yourself settle. So the mind, the heart can be still or at peace or quiet. And that stillness, that's when you start to, how things are always changing reveals itself to you much more, arising and passing. Seeing how things arise and pass is not so much that that's like the goal of practice. It's just that seeing the impermanent nature of things is one of the very effective ways or useful ways to help your mind, help your heart to let go, to not hold on so tight. It's very hard for the mind to learn that it's safe enough here in this world of ours to let go. It's very hard to have the trust that it's OK to not hold on to anything at all. And seeing and in seeing permanence how things arise and pass is a way the mind gets the lesson. It's a slow lesson sometimes, but it's a very deep lesson that actually you can't cling. Not possible to hold on. And it's not so much that you learn to let go, but the mind learns to let go. When the mind has really taken in and understands and sees more underneath the surface of things, underneath the surface of concepts and ideas and roles and identities, when the mind can see underneath that, into that building block of experience that arises and passes all the time, the mind can begin to let go, to relax. And the mind can learn that it doesn't have to be anything for anybody. It has nothing to prove, no identity to build up. The mind can take a vacation, deep, profound vacation, from all it's doing, all it's defending, all its fear, all its hate, all its desire, all its selfing. So I haven't met any of you here in the retreat yet. So I don't know where you're at in your practice and what's happening. But I offer this talk with the idea that perhaps you can see, look at yourself, at your experience, what's going on. And now is there some way in which you can question or put aside some of the orientations, concepts, ideas that you've been carrying with you, especially around self. In the service of being more fully in this moment, more fully in the stream, the river, more fully seeing how, moment by moment, there's a phenomenal display of things arising and passing that will help you feel more at ease, more settled and hopefully more free. So I hope that you enjoy the stillness that's here with so few of you at the retreat and that when change comes that you hold it lightly. Thank you.